Amen. You guys can go ahead and grab a seat. We're continuing our series, uh, Let's Go Caroling, but I am not um, uh, ignorant to the fact of what is also happening at 10 a.m. this morning. Uh, the World Cup, if you have been following, is happening at 10 a.m. So if I see any faces that are brightly lit uh, in the crowd, and I will look at you and be like, what's the score? No, I won't. Um, but I thought about making, you know, just a, a good old-fashioned preacher joke of, like, the World Cup may be happening, but you know whose cup was overflowing and won the world for you? Jesus. Never mind. I wasn't going to do that. I thought about it, but I'm not going to do that. Um, but I am, it's really good to see you all uh, this morning. I got a question for you that I want to start out the message with. Have you ever been so confidently wrong that you convinced others you were right? You ever been so wrong, but yet so confident in your wrongness that you actually convinced others you were right? Growing up, um, my family was a board game family. Anybody else, like their family plays family games together? Okay, all right. A lot of people shaking heads, a lot of people raising hands. I get it. Um, my family was a big board game, card game type people. Not poker, that's the devil's game. But we, we would play a lot of games growing up, and um, if you're new to church, that's a joke, but uh, I, I, I grew up playing a lot of uh, board games and card games with my mom and my, my, my dad and my siblings, and I will say this, though. My mother is a avid cheater when it comes to board games, and mom, you know, shout out to everybody listening on the podcast, but if mom, if you're listening to this, don't get mad. You know it's true. Um, I, my mom, when she would play Uno, she would lay down, she would like squish three cards together to where it looked like a singular card and lay three cards down. And that's how she would win so quickly. I'm like, we've only been around the table twice and you somehow laid down eight cards. Like, how is that even possible? But she would do these things. And um, there, was, there was a rule in our house when it came to Uno. You are not allowed to win in Uno. You're not allowed to win on a wild card. So if you had a wild card, you would have to draw another card and then play the wild card. And whatever you, if you drew another wild card, you just had to keep drawing until, like, you, didn't, you could not win on a wild card. That was a rule in our house. And my mom was so adamant about that rule. And there would be many of times where all I had left was a wild card. All my brothers had left were wild cards. And if you don't know anything about Uno, a wild card could be any color. Um, and so, like, it would be, like, the ultimate, like, doesn't matter what you lay down, I'm going to win, Right? My mom made a rule, you're not allowed to win on a wild card. And I thought that was the rule of Uno. So I would go to these different, uh, my friends' houses, and we would play Uno, and they would lay down a wild card, and they would win. And I'd be like, ah, 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 no, sir, you're not allowed to win on a wild card. I'm like, what are you talking about? We've never played like that. And I said, that is the rule of Uno. You're not allowed to win on a wild card. I know families still to this day who still play within the parameters of those rules. You are not allowed to win on a wild card. Lo and behold, when I was in college, I was playing Uno, and I was so adamant about this. One of my buddies in college Googled uh, the Uno rulebook, and it says, in fact, you can win on a wild card. You can win on a wild card. So I texted my mom immediately, and I was like, repent. No, I'm just kidding. I said, like, Mom, did you know this? She said, yes, I knew that, but when you were – However old, you were about to win on a wild card, and I didn't want you to win. I wanted to win, so I made up that rule, and it's been that rule of our home ever since. 
I'm like, are you kidding me right now? I have been so convinced of this wrong thing that I thought was right for so long. I have convinced other families in our church that this is true whenever it's wrong. Yep. What? What? And I want to, like, flip it to you guys. I've, maybe not as that silly of a story, but have you ever been so confidently wrong about something that you were convinced you were right? That you had convinced other people that you were right? Let's kind of make it a practicality really quick. Like, so many people in our world today are so bought in to what the wrong thing that is being taught, they actually mistake it for truth and right. Now, there is so much wrong being preached out there that is so adamantly, uh, like, that is so adamant that it's true and that it's right. They have convinced everybody else they're right whenever they were never even right to begin with. I'll give you a couple of examples. How about this one? That wealth brings you worth. That health actually brings you happiness. That when you give in to your natural desires, like that is what God gave you those desires for. If God didn't want you doing it, he wouldn't have given you those desires in the first place. So give in, do what thou wilt, right? Like do what you want to do. Give in to your desires because that is what they are there for. And we have bought into this wrong that has been preached as true, and now we believe it to be true. And now we get to this question in our world that should not be asked, but is actually needs to be asked more often than not, is what is true? What is right? Give in to these things, and you will find everything you're looking for. And we associate these things. We associate these, this health, the worth, all of these things as, I'm going to give you a word, blessed. If we live this way and do these things and accomplish these things, this is a wrong that we believe to be right, then that means we are blessed. Blessed and highly favored, right? Like, I am blessed. What makes you blessed? I've got six figures in my bank account. I'm blessed. God blessed me. Well, what about the people in the world that, don't have six figures in their bank account. Are they, are they not blessed? I'm blessed. We, our family has good health. We're blessed. God has blessed us. Well, to the people that are in the hospital that have followed Jesus their entire lives and they're looking, their death is knocking on their door. Are, are, they not, are they not blessed? What did they do to bring this upon them is sometimes what we ask. What did they do to bring this upon them? You know, in, in America, um, it's, you know, pray more, work harder, save money, dress this way, talk this way, move to the South, right? God's country, you know, be affiliated with, the, with this political party, get your life right, and you'll be blessed and highly favored too. If you do all these things, you will be blessed and highly favored. Work harder, pray more, dress a certain way, get your life right. Get a haircut. You have tattoos, Satan stickers. How dare you, sir? Right? Like, if you do all these things in these certain ways, you will be blessed and highly favored. You see, we are so confidently wrong. We think we're right. But if that's not right, and we're not right, then who's right? If that's false and not truth, then what is truth? 
Well, let me give you the Sunday school answer. God, Jesus, Jesus is right. His word is right. And Jesus is truth. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So if we have all these things so confidently wrong, we think we're right. I want us to turn the page this morning and, and try to see what, how God actually combats some of these things about what it actually looks like to be right and to be true. Why? Because in God's economy, things are different than in our economy. Jesus and Matthew on the Sermon on the Mount looks at thousands of people gathered and said, blessed are the poor. Not in our, not in our economy, right? But Jesus says, blessed are the poor. Blessed are the persecuted. Blessed are the meek, the humble. Right? In our world, in our, our culture, it's blessed are the rich. Blessed are the popular with the social status and influence. Blessed are those who uh, know how to talk the talk, walk the walk. Blessed are those who are highly favored and thought of in our society. Right? Because in our culture, it's dumb are the poor and blessed are the rich. It's if I'm persecuted, I may be being offensive. So let me, let me not. Let me not speak up. In God's economy, it's blessed are those who give sacrificially. Blessed are those who have and could have six figures in the bank account, but choose to give sacrificially to mission movements, to God's people, to the poor, to the local church. Blessed are those people. Blessed are the persecuted. Blessed are those who, when they speak up and live out their Christianity, that there is repercussions for their words and their actions. Blessed are them. Not, not blessed are you because you're a jerk, right? Like, that's not what I'm saying. Blessed are you that are persecuted because you are living a life so aligned with God's word that you are living otherworldly in a world that despises heaven. Blessed are you. And in our economy, we've got it backwards. We often ask the question if somebody's broke, if somebody's unhealthy, if their family is falling apart, if, if you insert whatever it is, what did they do to get themselves there? You behaved your way into that mess. You behaved your way here. And that is not always the case. In Luke chapter 2 this morning, which is where we were going to land, between the, this is, between the Old Testament and the New Testament, there were 400 years of silence. And sometimes we think in this 400 years of silence between the Old Testament and the New Testament, you know, we think that maybe, you know, God just abandoned humanity, which would go against the character of God. But here's what it means in 400 years of silence. It just means God did not have a, a designed, a designated prophet to a people group, to a king or a nation. God still moved. God still worked. There are multiple stories in the Old Testament where these men of God asked God, will you let me live long enough to see the Messiah? And they outlived their grandkids and great-grandkids. So God was obviously still working in humanity. He was just silent amongst humanity. But then in Luke chapter 1, a priest by the name of Zechariah was chosen by his peers to go into the Holy of Holies. So Zechariah is a priest. He's, he's in the temple, and his peers say, Zechariah, it's your turn. We vote you uh, 
We vote you this time to go into the Holy of Holies and to burn this incense. So Zechariah goes, okay, I'll do it. Well, when he goes into the Holy of Holies, this angel, God's messenger named uh, Gabriel, shows up to Zechariah and he says this, your wife Elizabeth will become pregnant and you will call his name John and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit and he will go and make way for the Savior for he is coming. 400 years of silence. This guy's a priest. He knows God's word in and out. And he knows that there has been a long time since God actually audibly spoke to humanity. And then all of a sudden, in the Holy of Holies, the place where there were so many rules and regulations that if you disobeyed one of them, you would be dead on the spot. They would attach a bell and a string to your ankle. And if the bell stopped ringing because you stopped walking, they would assume you're dead and drag your corpse out of the Holy of Holies. Boom! Gabriel shows up. Your wife will become pregnant. You will call his name John. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit. And he will go and prepare the way for the Savior of the world because he is coming. And everything happens just like Gabriel said it would. Well, when Elizabeth is six months pregnant, God sent Gabriel again to a teenager in Nazareth named Mary. And Gabriel says to Mary, the Savior of the world is coming. And you will give birth to him. And his name will be Emmanuel, God with us. And as we know, because we've talked about this before, a census is being taken and Mary and Joseph go to Bethlehem and she gives birth to Jesus, uh, which means God is salvation. So God went from being silent to being present. And who were the first people God told about this? Who did God want to come to the place where he arrived first. Me and my wife just welcomed um, Maverick into the world a little over four months ago. And um, if you have kids and um, you've been in uh, the hospital in the delivery room and you have people come and visit, there are certain people you want to come and visit, right? And there are certain people that's like, uh, you'll see my kid when he's a couple years old, right? Like, there, is just, there are different people that you're like, yeah, come on into the, to the hospital room. Like, come on in or stay away, right? Like, it's, I can't, like, for the husband, I'm like, yeah, everybody come, like, come through. Come, like, come check out my son. Like, to my wife, though, she's like, I just pushed a human out of my body. Like, I haven't showered since then. I, I do not want people to be coming and, and visit me, right? But... These, these individuals show up on the scene. Who are these individuals that show up on the scene? I'm going to start in Luke 2, Luke 2, verses 8 through 20. It says this. And in the same region, there were shepherds. Shepherds. I'm going to stop right there. Shepherds in this day and age are not like the pristine, like glorified people that we may think they are today. Shepherds were the drunks, the outcasts. The people with sailor's mouth. The people that have a couple of tattoos on their body, right? They're the people that hung out in the parts of the town that nobody wanted to go to. They were filthy. They were unreligious. They weren't out there studying the Torah. They were out there with animals and with alcohol. That's what they were out there with. There were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them. And the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were filled with great fear. And the angel of the Lord said to them, fear not, 
For behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. And when the angel went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. All who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told to them. In Luke chapter 2, we come upon the story of these shepherds. Now, nobody was expecting this moment. Nobody was expecting this to happen. Not the shepherds. Nobody knew when Jesus was coming. Nobody. It wasn't like this marked date on the calendar, you know, December 25th, so we think. Like, December 25th, Jesus is coming, the Savior of the world. And be ready, because he will be born in a manger. He'll be born in a stable. And on December 25th, shepherds get ready. There was none of this. These shepherds are out there, probably a little buzzed from the day that they had. And the sheep are going down, and they're laying there, and they're just chilling amongst themselves dirty and filthy, and all of a sudden, boom, sky opens up. Angels appear. <laughs> like, right? Like, they're looking at their bottle like, giving this up, right? Like, I, they don't know what is happening. The sky opened up. And it says they were scared and fearful. They were beyond, like, imagine you're just out in your backyard, And then, boom, the sky opens up. A host of angels appear, and they start talking to you. I I, I don't know what I would do, but fear is a very good adjective, right? That's a very good emotion to describe what I would experience in that moment. But the angels appear, and the sky opens up nonetheless to who? To shepherds. The shepherds. Now, I'm assuming the shepherds aren't out there meditating on the Torah. So in our world... Here's here's who these people are. These are the people who deserve the bad things that happen to them. These are the people that are overlooked and outcast by society. No, the church. These are the people we talk poorly about at dinner tables that we mock on Facebook because they're not living a life that is religiously acceptable. And maybe it's you. Maybe you put on a front to where you're publicly okay, but... Inside and internally, you're watching your family fall apart and you're watching your life fall apart. But in God's economy, you know who needs to hear this first? The people who think this isn't for them. The good news of great joy for all people is for the messy. And God starts with these people to let us know that if we're messy, there's no pressure to be anything more than recipients of his grace and his joy. If you are in here this morning and you feel like your life is a mess and unraveling before you, God has not asked you to be anything other 
than somebody who is a recipient of his grace and of his joy and of his gospel. And this should give us hope. This should give us hope. In fact, let me say it like this. Jesus' unexpected arrival was God's announcement that we can have hope. Jesus' unexpected arrival was God's announcement that we can have hope. Trey, what kind of hope? Really quickly. Number one, hope to experience God. Hope to experience God. The angels show up and they say, great joy for all people. That there can be joy even when life is less than ideal like shepherds in the fields. And the angels worship God. Did you know that the angels in 1 Peter chapter 1 are curious and do not understand salvation? According to 1 Peter chapter 1, the angels are so curious about the, the process of salvation and the fact that the God they circle around for all of eternity singing holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty humbled himself to become creation, to become human and walk amongst us to be tempted like we are yet without sin and then gave up his life and died, not like metaphorically died, but died for you and for me. You know, the angels, they, according to 1 Peter chapter 1, they don't understand it. And it's curious to them, this process and this thing called salvation. How the holy and righteous God they serve died for us to bring us back to him, to experience him. And here they show up, nonetheless excited for us. Like the God that we serve in heaven and, and sing his praises and is perfect and almighty He's coming. In fact, he's here. And they're excited for this. See, Luke is the gospel of peace. There are four prominent sacrifices in the Old Testament, trespass, sin, peace, and burnt offerings. And the Luke of gospel emphasizes the peace offering. So to give you some perspective, the Israelites, through story and, 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 and passing down from generation to generation of these stories, they don't know the God that we know. Here's how they know God. Yo, I heard generations back that our ancestors rebelled against God and Moses, and God was so fed up with them, he opened up the ground. Thousands and thousands and thousands of people fell into the earth. Then God closed up the ground, and they were dead. Yo, I heard one time that uh, these Israelites, they were on the verge of entering to the promised land. They didn't believe God. So God made them walk around the wilderness for 40 years until an entire generation died out. And then they were able to go into the promised land. Like, that's the God they know. That when there is rebellion, there is punishment. When there is rebellion, there is captivity and oppression. Like, that is the God who there is wrath towards sin. And so when these shepherds, who are what? The good people? No, the broken people, are out in the field, and they're not living a life that is up to the standard of heaven. And then God shows up. They're like, here it is, all the punishment. Like, open up the earth and let me fall in and die. Right? They have this expectation that when God shows up, there will be wrath and there will be judgment. But what do the angels start out with? Fear not. Peace be to you. There is this shift in God's arrival. When Jesus arises from the grave, what is one of the first, what is the first thing he says to the disciples that find him? Peace be to you. 
Because the disciples show up and they're like, we killed God, right? The ultimate no-no, right? Like cursing, bad. Killing God, bad, right? So they thought they killed him. He gave up his own spirit. That's a different kind of conversation. But they're like, he's alive. Is he coming like, like, is this vengeance? How is he coming back? He goes, peace be to you. And like Jesse read this morning in Isaiah, the prince of peace is coming. Jesus did not come to condemn the world. He came to save and redeem the world, to bring peace between humanity and heaven. And the angels were excited for us to get to experience God. What happened at that stable? I don't know. Did Jesus talk to them? Did he say anything? No, he was a baby. But he was God. And here's what we do know. God's presence is transformative. And God's word says, if you seek me, you will find me, and I will change you. I will, you will experience me. How do we experience God? My second thought is this. We hope to know God. We hope to experience God. Number two, we hope to know God. It did not take long in the presence of God to know that he is everything the angels declared and more. That the Old Testament, God was a mystery. Yes, they heard him and saw his hand, but nonetheless, he was a mystery to them. And here comes God in the flesh. Colossians 1.15 says, he is the image of the invisible God. If you want to know the heart of the Father, get to know Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God. So he is no longer a mystery to humanity. Here we have God in the flesh, and he is knowable. His spirit illuminates his word for you and me, so that way we can know the word named Jesus. When we get to know him, I mean really know him, we begin to grow in relationship, faith, and understanding and knowledge of who he is. I love the city of Jacksonville. Like, that is where I am from. Shout out 904 Duval County, Jacksonville, Florida. And if you were to come to me and say, what is the best place to get coffee in Jacksonville? I could lift, list off five coffee shops. Hey, I'm moving to Jacksonville. Where's the best place to live? Where's not the best place to live? I can name you five great places to live, and I can name you five places you want to avoid. Where's the best pizza shop in Jacksonville? I can name you five pizza shops, and I can say, stay away from these areas, right? Like, I, I, I know this city. I know that city. And, and, and I, because I know that city so well, there is, there, I, I know how to maneuver. I know how to see it. I know how to go about it. I, I am knowledgeable with that city. Therefore, I can tell you all about it. And because I know that city so well and because that city is so great, in my opinion, I, I love it and I love going there. But there are still parts of Jacksonville that I don't know. But because I know it, I can tell you about it. I can tell you how to look at it. I can tell you how to go about it. I can tell you about the city of Jacksonville. And the same thing goes with God. The more you know about God, spend time in his presence and in his word, people are like, tell me about God. Well, he is a savior. He's, he's, he's king. He's, he's Lord. About all I got. Okay, you're savior of the world who is infinite and vast in knowledge, and, and, and you, can under, you can climb as high up the mountain as you want in, in pursuing the knowledge of God. You are limited to these three attributes. Well, tell me about how he's salvation. He died for me. And we settle for the simplicity 
of that knowledge, whenever God is saying, come to me, spend time with me, get to know me. So that way when somebody says, how do you know God? How do you know this? How well, who is Jesus to you? You can say, he is my savior. For while I was lost and with no hope of mending my relationship to the father, he stepped down, lived a perfect life. And I have story after story in the Old Testament, story after story of, of the early church fathers, story after story of my own life of what salvation looks like. And people are like, wow, you really know God. And that, that image of, of Jacksonville pales in comparison into the, the vastness and, 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 and just infiniteness of God. But it is a picture of what it can look like. What, for, for me to know and to tell you? No, for you to know and to experience and to tell others. God can be known. And Jesus coming to earth gave us hope that God can be known, hope that God can be experienced. And number three, hope to be changed by God. God changes people. Sure, his love will meet you where you are, but it will not leave you there. These shepherds left telling everyone about Jesus. And they went back to the fields, worshiping and glorifying God. They went from a mess in the field to a messy messenger, worshiping and proclaiming a perfect Messiah. That this is our hope, that we don't have to change to come to God because we just make a bigger mess. My dad was a youth pastor for the longest time, and we grew up in, in kids' ministry, which is partially why I hate Domino's Pizza, just because I grew up on it, and it's the worst. But my brother, there was one time, he was like five or six or something like that, and um, there was a group of, uh, of small group leaders over in the corner of the youth room. And, you know, when you're a kid, my brother, I'd be like, hey, bud, I love you. Just punch to the gut. Like, that's how he showed love. And he would walk up to these older people in our church, and they'd be like, hey, Colton, you know, you're the pastor's son. And he'd just be like, yeet, and just like punch them. Like, that was how he said hi and I love you. So there was this one time he walks up to a group of small group leaders, and he just straight up, like, goes to kick them. Well, the small group leader just instantly, like, reacts and, like, brushes the foot away. Well, it knocked him off balance. He fell, and his arm right here snapped in half, like, in the youth room. And this small group leader was like, oh, uh, 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 what do I do? So he runs, and he gets my dad, and then my dad comes over. He sees Cole, and he's like, oh, let's go. Like, it had, there was enough broken bones in our house. It was just another day. And so my dad takes him to the emergency room. They, put, they set the arm. They put the cast on. And then after a couple months goes by, uh, they take the cast, or a couple weeks go by, they take the cast off. They check the bone, and the, his arm is crooked. It was not set right. So here's what they have to do at the hospital in front of my mother. I was not there, thank God, right? Um, the doctor says, I have to break it again. And so this doctor in front of my mom I was not there. This is word of mouth. You know, my mom's a liar, so we'll see what happens if this story's true. I'm just kidding, mom. I love you. My mom, she says the doctor took my arm, my brother's arm, put it over his knee, and right there. It wasn't fully healed, so it was a little weak, right? Like, if, if that makes it better, right? Like, oh, he's fine. It wasn't fully healed. It was just hairline fracture at that point. Broke it again and had to reset it, put the cast on, and it was fine. And I tell that story to, to illustrate this truth. Whenever you and I try to fix ourselves and, and become self-righteous and say, I've got to clean myself up before I come to know God and experience God, it is like that first doctor that set the broken arm that was like, you're good now, right? Like, 
We're good, right? Like, you got an open flesh wound, just rub some dirt in it, some spit, grit, and a whole lot of toothpaste. That'll clean any, clean any wound, right? No. And so now we get to this point where we're like, God, I'm good. I'm good, right? I am clean. I have put myself together. I have read the Bible this month. Um, I have attended church this year. Uh, I have not cursed anybody out outside of traffic in my car. Like, God, I am good, right? And God is looking at you, and he's like, all of your good doings are like filthy rags compared to me. Meaning this, he's like, I'm, you're going to have to be rebroken for the gospel of Jesus. And sometimes when we talk about brokenness, and we talk about these, like, God, break me. Like, I had a friend of mine who was like, I just want God to break me. Like, what do you think that means? And he's like, God, to just wreck and destroy my life. I'm like, I don't think God's into destroying lives. I don't think he's into wrecking lives. I, here's what I think it means. Have you ever ridden a horse? I have a fear of horses. But if you've ever ridden a horse and you break a horse, what does it mean? It means you get the horse to trust you and follow you. You break the spirit of rebellion, and now he has the spirit of obedience and trust. And that is what, to me, the spirit of brokenness is, that when God breaks you, he breaks the spirit of rebellion to get you to obey him, trust him, and to follow him wherever he would lead you. And God's word says, he leads me to green pastures, to still waters, to restore my soul. So instead of me trying to figure this out and to change myself before I go to God, God is saying, come to me, messy, and I will change that's the hope that we have in Jesus. And finally, hope that uh, he will return. We have hope to experience God, hope to know God, hope to be changed by God, and finally, hope that God will return. Again, I know I referenced this earlier, but I'm going to reference it again. Nobody on December 25th, the year 33 B.C., was like, here comes the Savior, here comes Jesus. It was, boom, sky opens up, a multitude of angels appear, Jesus is coming, glorify him. Like, like that's my version of it, ready? And uh, then he appears, and the, and the shepherds go, they see him, They're, they experience him. They're like, we know that he is everything that God, that heaven said he would be, that God's word said he would be, and they leave and they're changed by him, they're evangelists for him. There was no expectation that this was going to happen on this night, but it happened. He came. Do you know that you and I have more biblical writing and proof and promises that God is, that God is returning than they did that God is coming? That you and I, there is more verses in the Bible about God's return than God's uh, first coming. And while they were unaware and unexpected, he showed up. And I'm asking you, and I'm, and I'm saying this to you, not to scare you, but to tell you, are you living a life? Are you ready where if Jesus, for some random reason, were to show up today, that you would be ready and prepared? Because we don't live expectantly. Right? Like, looking back, you're like, they should have been living expectantly. But we're not. And we have more proof and text to say that he's returning than, it did that, that, than they did that he was coming. We need to live with the expectation that Jesus is coming. And we need to live expectantly. Do you know when Jesus is coming? I don't. God's word says not even the angels know he's coming. 
They're all looking at the throne of heaven, waiting for the head nod. And then the skies will open up. Jesus will appear on the clouds. And all those who know him, he will call them unto himself. And they will vanish into the clouds and spend eternity with him. And it says it will happen in the blink of an eye. The heavens open up, the trumpets will sound, and our Savior will call us home. Are you ready for that? Are you expectant for that? I, a little bit of just openness and transparency, and I don't even know how much this has to do with the message, but I'm going to share it anyways. I remember a preacher sharing this message and being like, are you ready for God coming? I remember being in middle school, like, not till I have sex, like, right? Like, that was always my one thing. I'm like, I'm not married yet, so no, Lord, I'm not ready for you to come back. I'm good now. we got two kids. Jesus, come home anytime, right? Like, like, are you living expectantly and ready? Are you living for the time that Jesus could show up at any time and none of us know, not the angels know? And unexpectedly, God will give a head nod. The skies will open up and Jesus will be here. And if Jesus, if the Bible was right about the first coming, it's right about the second. And when he comes, he will make all things new and justice and righteousness will prevail. Are you ready? Jesus' unexpected arrival was God's announcement that we can have hope. And when you think about who God told first, he told shepherds. And those shepherds' lives were so radically transformed with the hope of the world that they became the first evangelists in Scripture. Do you know who God has instructed and left to be the shepherds today? The messengers of his hope? His church. You and me. And I believe that once the church realizes that the streets don't have to come to the stable to experience the Savior, but that the messengers, the shepherds, can take the message of the stable to the streets, we will experience a gospel movement in our community. That we don't have to tell everybody, hey, come and see Jesus. Come and see the Savior of the world. But they say, hey, I'm bringing Jesus to you. How? In this conversation. In this moment. That people don't have to come to church to experience God. That the presence of God goes where you, where you go. That the message of the Savior of the stable goes where you go. The shepherds went to the streets praising and glorifying God. They were the first evangelists. And now we're the evangelists. I believe we will see a harvest. I have hope. I have hope for you. I have hope for your family. I have hope for your marriage. I have hope for your kids. I have hope for your family, your coworkers, your friends. Why? Because I think y'all are amazing, of course. But because I think that you guys are perfect and righteous, no. Because I believe in the Savior of the world who is the hope of the world and that he can do the unexpected miraculous in you and through you, in your family and through your family, in your kids and through your kids, in your marriage and through your marriage, in your work and through your work. I have hope for you. And that's what Christmas is about. That hope, it was God's announcement to the rest of the world. That hope is here. Hope is here. Would you stand with me as I close this in prayer? Dear God, I love you and I'm thankful for you. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your grace. God, thank you for hope. And that hope has a name. 
Love has a name. Joy has a name. Peace has a name. And it's a name that drives back darkness. It's a name that, that shakes the foundations of the earth. God, it's the name that broke strongholds. God, it's the name we speak over our, our families, our lives, and our kids. And that name is Jesus. Thank you for being our hope. In the name of Jesus, amen.